29. Clouds. A gentleman told me he had seen the dry bed of a river where there were two feet of sand, swept clean to the rock by the strength of the wind alone. A little past daylight the sleigh came to a sudden stop despite the efforts of all concerned. The last hundred versts of our ride we had four horses to each sleigh, and their united strength was not more than sufficient for our purpose. The drift where we stopped was at least three feet deep, and pretty closely packed. We, that is to say, the horses and yamshiks, made several efforts but could not carry the sleigh through. The mammoth sleigh came up and the two yamshiks trod a path through the worst part of the drift. The doctor and I descended from the vehicle, and assisted by looking on, the sleigh thus lightened, was dragged through the obstruction but unfortunately turned on its beam ends, and filled with snow before it could be righted. The buran was from the south, and raised the temperature above the freezing point. The increasing heat became uncomfortable after the cold I had experienced. The horses did not turn white from perspiration as in colder days, and the exertion of travel set them panting as in summer. The drivers carefully knotted there the horses' tails to prevent them the tails from filling with snow. But the precaution was not entirely successful. The snow was of the right consistency for a schoolboy's frolic, and would have thrown a group of American urchins into ecstasies. Whenever our pace quickened to a trot or gallop, the larboard horse threw a great many snowballs with his feet. He seemed to aim at my face, and every few minutes I received what the prize ring would call plumpers in the peeper and sock laggers on the potato trap. We drove into Barneal about 44 hours after leaving Tomsk. At the hotel we found three rooms containing chairs and tables in profusion, but not a bed or sofa. Of course we were expected to supply our own bedding, and need not be particular about a bedstead. The worst part of the affair was the wet condition of our furs. My sheepskin sleigh robe was altogether too damp for use, and I sent it to be dried in the kitchen. Several of my fur garments went the same way. Even my shuba, which I carried in a bag, had a feeling of dampness when I unfolded it. And in fact the only dry things about us, were our throats. We set things drying as best we could, and then ordered dinner. Before our sleighs were unloaded, a policeman took our passports and saved us all trouble of going to the station. In the evening I accompanied Dr. Schmidt on a visit to a friend and fellow member of the Academy of Science. We found a party of six or eight persons, and, as soon as I was introduced, a gentleman dispatched a servant to his house. The man returned with a roll of sheet music from which our host's daughter favored us with the Star-Spangled Banner, and Hail Columbia, as a greeting to the first American visitor to Barneal. On our return to our lodgings we made our beds on the floor, and slept comfortably. The dampness of the furs developed a rheumatic pain in my shoulder that stiffened me somewhat inconveniently. We breakfasted upon cakes and tea at a late hour in the morning, and then went to pay our respects to General Freeze, the Nakalnik or Director of Mines, and to Colonel Filoff, Chief of the Smelting Works. Both these officers were somewhat past the middle age, quiet and affable, and each enjoyed himself in coloring a meerschaum. They have been engaged in mining matters during many years and are said to be thoroughly versed in their profession. After visiting these gentlemen we called upon other official and civilian residents of the city. Barneal is the center of direction of the mining enterprises of the Altai Mountains, and has a population of 10 or 12,000. Almost its entire business is in some way connected with mining affairs, and there are many engineer officers constantly stationed there. I met some of these gentlemen during my stay, 
and was indebted to them for information concerning the manner of working mines and reducing ores. The city contains a handsome array of public buildings, including the mining bureau, the hospital, and the Zadot or smelting establishment. General Freeze, the Nikelnik, is director and chief, not only of the city but of the entire mining district of which Barneal is the center. The first discoveries of precious metals in the Altai regions were made by one of the demigods who was sent there by Peter the Great. A monument in the public square at Barneal records his services. In ever during brass, I was shown an autograph letter from the Empress Elizabeth giving directions to the Nikelnik who controlled the mines during her reign. The letter is kept in an ivory box on the table around which the mining board holds its sessions. The mines of this region are the personal property of the Emperor and their revenues go directly to the crown. I was told that the government desires to sell or give these mines into private hands, in the belief that the resources of the country would be more thoroughly developed. The day before my departure from Barneal, I learned that my visit had reference to the possible purchase of the mining works by an American company. I hastened to assure my informant that I had no intention of buying the Altai Mountains or any part of them. The Nikelnik visits all mines and smelting works in his district at least once a year, and is constantly in receipt of detailed reports of operations in progress. His power is almost despotic, and like the governors of departments throughout all Siberia, he can manage affairs pretty much in his own way. There are no convict laborers in his district, the workmen at the mines and Zavods being peasants subject to the orders of government. Each man in the district may be called upon to work for the emperor at fixed wages of money and rations. I believe the daily pay of a laborer is somewhat less than 40 kopecks. A compromise for saints' days and other festivals is made by employing the men only two weeks out of three. Relays are so arranged as to make no stoppage of the works except during the Christmas holidays. I saw many sheets of the geological map of the Altai region, which has been a long time in preparation and will require several years to complete. Every mountain, hill, brook, and valley is laid down by careful surveyors, and when the map is finished it will be one of the finest and best in the world. One corps is engaged in surveying and mapping while another explores and opens mines. When the snows are melted in the spring, and the floods have rested from the streams, the exploring parties are sent into the mountains. Each officer has a particular valley assigned him and commands a well-equipped body of men. He is expected to remain in the mountains until he has finished his work, or until compelled to leave by the approach of winter. The party procures meat from game, of which there is nearly always an abundant supply. Holes are dug at regular intervals. On the system I have already described in the mines of the Yenisei, the rocks in and around the valley are carefully examined for traces of silver and many specimens have been collected for the geological cabinet at Barneal. Maps are made showing the locality of each test hole in the valley, and the spot whence every specimen of rock is obtained. On the return of the party its reports and specimens are delivered to the mining bureau. The ores go to the laboratory to be assayed, and the specimens of rock are carefully sorted and examined. Gold washings are conducted on the general plan of those in the Unisys government, the details varying according to circumstances. A representation of the principal silver mine somewhat on the plan of Barnum's Niagara with rail water was shown me in the museum. In general features the mines are not materially unlike silver mines elsewhere. There are shafts, attics, and levels just as in the mines of Colorado and California. The Russians give the name of Priest to a mine where gold is washed from the earth. 
The silver mine with its shafts in the solid rock is called a rudnik. As before stated, the word zavod is applied to foundries, smelting works, and manufactories in general. Colonel Filoff invited the doctor and myself to visit the Zavod at Barneal on the second day after our arrival. As he spoke no language with which I was familiar, the colonel placed me in charge of a young officer fluent in French, who took great pains to explain the modus operandi. The Zavod is on a grand scale, and employs about 600 laborers. It is enclosed in a large yard with high walls, and reminded me of a Pennsylvania iron foundry or the establishment just below Detroit. A sentry at the gate presented arms as we passed, and I observed that the rule of no admittance except on business was rigidly enforced. In the yard we were first taken to piles of ore which appeared to an unpracticed eye like heaps of old mortar and broken granite. These piles were near a stream which furnishes power for moving the machinery of the establishment. The ore was exposed to the air and snow, but the coal for smelting was carefully housed. There were many sheds for storage within easy distance of the furnaces. The latter were of brick with tall and substantial chimneys, and the outer walls that surrounded the whole were heavily and strongly built. Charcoal is burned in consequence of the cheapness and abundance of wood. I was told that an excellent quality of stove coal existed in the vicinity, and would be used whenever it proved most economical. Nearly all the ore contains copper, silver, and lead, while the rest is deficient in the last named article. The first kind is smelted without the addition of lead and sometimes passes through six or seven reductions. For the ore containing only copper and silver the process by evaporation of lead is employed. Formerly the lead was brought from Nurchinsk or purchased in England, the land transport in either case being very expensive. Several years ago the lead was found in the Altai Mountains, and the supply is now sufficient for all purposes. The lead absorbs the silver, and leaves the copper in the refuse matter. This was formerly thrown away but by a newly invented process the copper is extracted and saved. The production of silver in the Altai mines is about a thousand and fifty poods annually, or forty thousand pounds at her poise. The silver is cast into bars or cakes about ten inches square, and weighing from seventy to a hundred pounds each. Colonel Filoff showed us into the room where the silver is stored. Two soldiers were on guard and six or eight others rested outside. A sergeant brought a sealed box which contained the key of the safe. First the box and then the safe were opened at the colonel's order, and when we had satisfied our curiosity, the safe was locked and the key restored to its place of deposit. The colonel carried the seal that closed the box, and the sergeant was responsible for the integrity of the wax. The cakes had a dome hue, somewhat lighter than that of lead, and were of a convenient shape for handling. Each cake had its weight, and value, and result of a safe stamped upon it and I was told that it was a seat again at St. Petersburg to guard against the algebraic process of substitution. About 30 poods of gold are extracted from every thousand poods of silver after the treasure reaches St. Petersburg. The silver is extracted from the lead used to absorb it, the latter being again employed while the former goes on its long journey to the banks of the Neva. The ore continues to pass through successive reductions until a pood of it contains no more than three-fourths as loading of silver, Less than that proportion will not pay expenses. I was told that the annual cost of working the mines equaled the value of the silver produced. The gold contained in the silver is the only item of profit to the crown. About 30,000 poods of copper are produced annually in this district, but none of the copper's odds are at Barneal. All gold produced from the mines of Siberia, 
with the exception of that around Nerchinsk, is sent to Barneal to be smelted. This work is performed, in a room about 15 feet square, the furnaces being fixed in its center like parlor stoves of unusual size. The smelting process continues for months of each year, and during this time about 1200 poods of gold are melted and cast into bars. This work, for 1866, was finished a few days before my arrival, and the furnaces were utterly devoid of heat. In the yard at the Zavod, I saw a dozen or more sleds, and on each of them there was an iron-bound box filled with bars of gold. This train was ready to leave under strong guard for St. Petersburg. The morning after my visit to the Zavod it was reported that a soldier guarding the sled train had been killed during the night. The incident was a topic of conversation for the rest of my stay, but I obtained no clear account of the affair. All agreed that a sentinel was murdered, and one of the boxes plundered of several bars of gold, but beyond this there were conflicting statements. It was the first occurrence of the kind at Barneal, and naturally excited the peaceful inhabitants. The doctor trusted that the affair would not be associated with our visit, and I quite agreed with him. It is to be hoped that the future historian of Barneal will not mention the murder and robbery in the same paragraph with the distinguished arrival of Dr. Schmidt and an American traveler. The rich miners send their gold once a year to Barneal, the poorer ones twice a year. Those in pressing need of money receive certificates of deposit as soon as their gold is cast into bars and on these certificates they can obtain cash at the government banks. The opulent miners remain content till their gold reaches the capital, and is coined. Four or six months may thus elapse after gold has left Barneal before its owner obtains returns. Chapter XLIV. The society of Barneal consists of the mining and other officers, with a larger proportion of families than at Irkutsk. It had a more quiet and reserved character than the capital of eastern Siberia but was not the less social and hospitable. Many young officers of the mining and topographical departments pass their summers in the mountains and their winters in Barneal. The cold season is therefore the gayest, and abounds in balls, parties, concerts, and amateur theatricals. The former theater has been converted into a club room. There is a good proportion, for a Siberian town, of elegant and luxuriant houses. The furniture and adornments were quite as extensive as at Irkutsk or Tomsk, and several houses that I visited would have been creditable in Moscow or St. Petersburg. It is no little wonder to find all the comforts and luxuries of Russian life in the southern part of Siberia. On the borders of the Kyrgyz steppes, the large and well-arranged museum contained more than I could even glance over in a single day. There were models of machines used in gold washing, quartz mills 50 years old, and almost identical with those of the present day, models of furnaces and zavods in various parts of Siberia, and full delineations of the principal silver mines of the Altai. There was a curious steam engine, said to have been made at Barneal in 1764, and used for blowing the furnaces. I saw a fine collection of minerals, birds, beasts, and other curiosities of the Altai. Particular attention was called to the stuffed skins of two enormous tigers that were killed several years ago in the southern part of the district. One of them fell after a long fight, in which he killed one of his assailants and wounded two others. The museum contains several dead specimens of the Berkelot, or eagle of the Altai. I saw a living bird of this species at the house of an acquaintance. The Berkelot is larger than the American eagle, and possesses strength enough to kill a deer or wolf with perfect ease. Dr. Dumberg, superintendent of the hospitals, 
told me of an experiment with poison upon one of these birds. He began by giving half a grain of curvar, a poison from South America. It had no perceptible effect, the appetite and conduct of the bird being unchanged. A week later he gave four grains of strychnine, and saw the bird's feathers tremble fifteen minutes after the poison was swallowed. Five hours later the patient was in convulsions, but his head was not affected, and he recovered strength and appetite on the next day. A week later the bear coat swallowed seven grains of curvar, and showed no change for two days. On the second evening he went into convulsions, and died during the night. The Kyrgyz tame these eagles and employ them in hunting. A gentleman who had traveled among the Kyrgyz told me he had seen a bear coat swoop down upon a full-grown deer and kill him in a few minutes. Sometimes when a pack of wolves has killed and begun eating a deer, the feast will be interrupted by a pair of bear coats. Two birds will attack a dozen wolves, and either kill or drive them away. Barneal is quite near the Kyrgyz steppes. One of my acquaintances had a Kyrgyz coachman, a tall, well-formed man, with thick lips and a coppery complexion. I established a friendship with this fellow, and arranged that he should sit for his portrait, but somehow he was never ready. He brought me two of his kindred, and I endeavored to persuade the group to be photographed. There was a superstition among them that it would be detrimental to their post-mortem repose if they allowed their likenesses on this earth when they themselves should leave it. I offered them one, two, three, and even five rubles, but they stubbornly refused. Their complexions were dark and their whole physiognomy revealed the Tartar blood. They wore the Russian winter dress, but had their own costume for state occasions. In this part of Siberia Kyrgyz are frequently found in Russian employ, and are said to be generally faithful and industrious. A considerable number find employment at the Altai mines, and a great many are engaged in taking cattle and sheep to the Siberian markets. The Kyrgyz lead a nomadic life making frequent change of residence to find pasturage for their immense flocks and herds. The different tribes are more or less hostile to each other, and have a pleasant habit of organizing raids on a colossal scale. One tribe will suddenly swoop down upon another and steal all portable property within reach. They do not mind a little fighting, and an enterprise of this kind frequently results in a good many broken heads. The chiefs believe themselves descended from the great warriors of the ancient Tartar days and boast loudly of their prowess. The Kyrgyz are brave in fighting each other, but have a respectful fear of the Russians. Occasionally they plunder Russian traders crossing the steppes, but are careful not to attack unless the odds are on their own side. The Russians have applied their diplomacy among the Kyrgyz and pushed their boundaries far to the southward. They have purchased titles to districts controlled by powerful chiefs, and after being fairly settled have continued negotiations for more territory. They make use of the hostility between the different tribes, and have managed so that nearly every feud brought advantages to Russia. Under their policy of toleration they never interfere with the religion of the conquered, and are careful not to awaken prejudices. The tribes in the subjugated territory are left pretty much to their own will. Every few years the chain of frontier posts is pushed to the southward, and embraces a newly acquired region. Western Siberia is dotted over with abandoned and crumbling forts that once guarded the boundary, but are now far in the interior. Some of these defenses are near the great road across the Baraba steppe. The Kyrgyz do not till the soil nor engage in manufactures, except of a few articles for their own use. They sell sheep, cattle, and horses to the Russians, and frequently accompany the droves to their destination. In return for their flocks and herds they receive goods of Russian manufacture. 
either for their own use or for traffic with the people beyond. Their wealth consists of domestic animals and the slaves to manage them. Horses and sheep are legal tender in payment of debts, bribes, and presents. In the last few years Russian conquest in Central Asia has moved so fast that England has taken alarm for her Indian possessions. The last intelligence from that quarter announces a victory of the Russians near Samarkand, followed by negotiations for peace. If the Muscovite power continues to extend over that part of Asia, England has very good reason to open her eyes. I never conversed with the emperor on this topic, and cannot speak positively of his intentions toward Asia, but am confident he has fixed his eye upon conquest as far south of the Altai as he can easily go, that his armies may sometime hoist the Russian flag in sight of the Indo-English possessions, is not at all improbable but that they will either attempt or desire an aggressive campaign against India is quite beyond expectation. It is but a few years ago that English travelers were killed for having made their way into Central Asia in disguise, and Damri, the Hungarian traveler, was considered to have performed a great feat because he returned from there with his life. There is now the Tashkent Messenger, a Russian paper devoted to the interests of that rich province. Moscow merchants are establishing the Bank of Central Asia having its headquarters at Tashkent and a branch at Orenburg, and Tashkent will soon be in telegraphic communication with the rest of the world. A plan has been proposed to open Central Asia to steamboat navigation, the River Oxus, or Amudarya, which flows through Bakar and Kiva, emptying into the Aral Sea, was once a tributary of the Caspian. Several steamers have been placed upon it, and others are promised soon. The dry bed of the old channel of the Oxus is visible in the Turkoman steppe at the present day. The original diversion was artificial, and the dikes which direct it into the Aral are said to be maintained with difficulty. It has been proposed to send an expedition to remove these barriers and turn the river into its former bed. Coupled with this project is another to divert the course of the Serdaria and make it an affluent of the Oxus. This last proposition was half carried out 200 years ago and its completion would not be difficult. By the first project, Russia would obtain a continuous waterway from Nine Novgorod on the Volga to Balkan the Amudarya, within 200 miles of British India. The second scheme carried out would bring Tashkent and all Central Asia under commercial control, and have a political effect of no secondary importance. A new route might thus be opened to British India, and European civilization carried into a region long occupied by semi-barbarian people. Afghanistan would be relieved from its anarchy and brought under wholesome rule. The geographical effect would doubtless be the drying up of the Aral Sea. A railway between Balkh and Delhi would complete an inland steam route between St. Petersburg and Calcutta. Surveys have been ordered for a Central Asiatic railway from Orenburg or some point farther south, and it is quite possible that before many years the locomotive will be shrieking over the Tartar steppes and frightening the flocks and herds of the wandering Kalmaks and Kyrgyz. A railway is in process of construction from the Black Sea to the Caspian, and when this is completed, a line into Central Asia is only a question of time. The Russians have an extensive trade with Central Asia. Goods are transported on camels. The caravans coming in season for the fairs of Irbit and Nine Novgorod. The caravans from Bokhara proceed to Troitska. Lap. 54 degrees Enlon. 61 degrees 20 Petropavlovsk. Lap. 54 degrees 30 and long, 69 degrees E and Orenburg, lap, 51 degrees 46 and long, 55 degrees 5 E. There is also a considerable traffic to Sempolensk, lap, 
50 degrees 30 and long, 80 degrees e the Russian merchandise consists of metals, iron and steel goods, beads, mirrors, cloths of various kinds, and a miscellaneous lot too numerous to mention. Much of the country over which these caravans travel is a succession of Asiatic steppes, with occasional salt lakes and scanty supplies of fresh water. After passing the Altai Mountains and outlying chains the routes are quite monotonous, fearful burans are frequent, and in certain parts of the route they take the form of sandstorms. A Russian army on its way to Kiva 25 years ago, was almost entirely destroyed in one of these desert tempests. Occasionally the caravans suffer severely. The merchandise from Bokhara includes raw cotton, sheepskins, rhubarb, dried fruits, peltries, silk, and leather, with shawl goods of different kinds. Cotton is an important product. And in the latter part of my journey I saw large quantities going to Russian factories. 300 years ago a German traveler in Russia wrote an account of a wonderful plant beyond the Caspian Sea. Voracious people, says the writer, tell me that the boros, or sheep plant, grows upon a stalk larger than my thumb. It has a head, eyes, and ears like a sheep, but is without sensation. The natives use its wool for various purposes. I heard an interesting story of an adventure in which one of the Kyrgyz, who was living among the Russians at the time of my visit to Barneal, played an important part. He was a fine-looking fellow, whose tribe lived between the Altai Mountains and Lake Kiril, spending the winters in the lowlands and the summers in the valleys of the foothills. He was the son of one of the patriarchs of the tribe, and was captured, during a barrenness or foray, by a chief who had long been on hostile terms with his neighbors. The young man was held for ransom, but the price demanded was more than his father could pay, and so he remained in captivity. He managed to ingratiate himself with the chief of the tribe that captured him, and as a mark of honor, and probably as an excuse for the high ransom demanded, he was appointed to live in the chief's household. He was allowed to ride with the party when they moved, and accompany the herdsmen, but a sharp watch was kept on his movements whenever he was mounted and care was taken that the horses he rode were not very fleet. The chief had a daughter whom he expected to marry to one of his powerful neighbors, and thereby secure a permanent friendship between the tribes. She was a style of beauty highly prized among the Asiatics, was quite at home on horseback, and understood all the arts and accomplishments necessary to a Kyrgyz maiden of noble blood. It is nothing marvelous that the young captive, Selim, should become fond of the charming Uxen, the daughter of his captor. His fondness was reciprocated, but, like prudent lovers everywhere, they concealed their feelings, and to the outer world preserved a most indifferent exterior. Selim thought it best to elope, and broached his opinion to Ixon, who readily favored it. They concluded to make the attempt when the tribe was moving to change its pasturage, and their absence would not be noticed until they had several hours start and were many miles on their way. They waited until the chief gave the order to move to another locality, where the grass was better. Uxen managed to leave the tent in the night, under some frivolous pretext, and select two of her father's best horses, which she concealed in a grove not far away. By previous arrangement she appeared sullen and indignant toward Selim, who, mounted on a very sorry nag, set off with a party of men that were driving a large herd of horses. The latter were ungovernable, and the party became separated so that it was easy for Selim to drop out altogether and make his way to the grove where the horses were concealed. In the same way Ixen abandoned the party she started with, and within an hour from the time they left the Anul, or encampment, 
the lovers met in the grove. It was a long way to Selim's tribe, but he knew it was somewhere in the mountains to the north and west. Having left its winter quarters in the low country, the pair said their prayers in the true Mohammedan style, and then, mounting their horses, set out at an easy pace to ascend the valley toward the higher land. Their horses were in excellent condition, but they knew it would be necessary to ride hard in case they were pursued, and they wished to reserve their strength for the final effort. An hour before nightfall, they saw, far down the valley, a party in pursuit. The party was riding rapidly, and from appearances had not caught sight of the fugitives. After a brief consultation the latter determined to turn aside at the first bend of the valley, and endeavor to cross at the next stream, while leaving the pursuers to go forward and be deceived. They turned aside, and were gratified to see from a place of concealment the pursuing party proceed up the valley. The departure of the fugitives was evidently known some time earlier than they expected, else the pursuit would not have begun so soon. Guided by the general course of the hills, the fugitives made their way to the next valley, and, as the night had come upon them, they made a camp beneath a shady tree, picketing their horses, and eating such provisions as they had brought with them. In the morning, just as their steeds were saddled and they were preparing to resume their journey, they saw their pursuers enter the valley a mile or two below them, and move rapidly in their direction. Evidently they had turned back after losing the track, and found it without much delay. But their horses were more weary than those of the fleeing lovers, so that the latter were confident of winning the race. Swift was the flight and swift the pursuit. The valley was wide and nearly straight, and the lovers steadily increased the distance between them and their pursuers. They followed no path but kept steadily forward, with their faces toward the mountains, their pursuers, originally half a dozen, diminished to five, then to four, and as the hours wore on Selim found that only two were in sight, but a new obstacle arose to his escape, he knew that the valley he was ascending was abruptly enclosed in the mountains, and escape would be difficult, further to the east was a more practicable one, and he determined to attempt to reach it, turning from the valley, he was followed by his two pursuers, who were so close upon him that he determined to fight them. Uxen had brought away one of her father's smetters, and with this Selim prepared to do battle. Finding a suitable place among the rocks, he concealed his horses, and with Uxen made a stand where he could fight to advantage. He took his position on a rock just over the path his pursuers were likely to follow, and watched his opportunity to hurl a stone, which knocked, 